there. I am Dr. Amy King, otherwise known as Dr. Amy, and this podcast is the most important medicine. If you're a physician or healthcare provider, this podcast is for you. This is where we learn about trauma-informed medicine and ways to build resilience in healthcare organizations. And we do this through stories, the stories of yours and other professionals and patients. We listen to each other to transform medicine with compassion and curiosity about what it means to be a trauma-informed practice or provider. Every time you join me, I want you to hear practical information and leave with tangible tools that you can use with patients right away. So today, friends, I am excited to introduce a new friend and colleague of mine that we've, I've met recently. I wanna to introduce to you Katie Kurtz. Katie Kurtz is a trauma-informed subject care matter expert specializing in delivering inclusive trainings and consultation that are adoptable for any profession. She holds a master's degree in social work and graduate certificate in nonprofit management. She has 15 years of trauma-focused work as a licensed social worker in the state of Ohio, where she's also the regional co-chair of the state of Ohio's Trauma-Informed Care Collaborative. She is the author of the Trauma Competencies Framework, the Trauma-Informed Space Holding Blueprint, and the Contain Card Deck, which we will dive into as we talk today and learn all about Katie's work. But Katie, I'm so glad you're here. Thank you. Oh, I'm so glad to be here. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. Okay, so that's like your formal bio. Those are the things that people can find on your website. Tell our listeners more about you as a whole person. Yeah. Well, I always say I'm human first, everything else second. Uh, I have so many beautiful experiences and trainings and education and all of that, which has brought me to where I'm at. Um, and I really am grateful for so much of my learned experience, but so much of my lived experience also really inspires and influences and impacts how I show up. Uh, so in addition to being a social worker and a coach and a trainer and a yoga teacher and all these things, um, I'm also a caregiver of two parents. My mom uh, and dad both have um, chronic illnesses. My mom has Alzheimer's. So it's a big part of my life is uh, being their healthcare advocate, uh, their social worker, their daughter and, and caregiver. Um, and I'm a partner and a dog mom and you know a person just trying to also live in this world that's always bombarding us with so many different stressors and joys. So yeah. yeah. I follow Katie on Instagram, all the socials and LinkedIn. And she had a beautiful post. Um, you had a beautiful post the other day about your parents and gorgeous photos. And then we also, we always get to see your dogs on, on your stories. Uh, what kind of dogs do you have? I have two puppies. Uh, they're cavadoodles and a cat. It's a cavadoodle and a cavapoo. So they're little Muppets. They're like little fluffy fluff balls. So they're very little and they're, we're in the puppy life, but they bring us a lot of joy and a lot of nervous system regulation and dysregulation sometimes, but uh, there's a lot of power in pets. And so I, I'm grateful for mine. Yeah, I totally agree. I totally agree. Well, tell me um, and the listeners, what are you excited about doing right now in your work? Oh, I am so excited. You know, it's, when people first meet me and they're like, what do you do? And I explain, and sometimes they get that crinkled face, like what? And I share, you know, my backgrounds in trauma and trauma-informed care. And they 
always looks sort of sullen, like, oh, that's so heavy. It's so hard. And I'm always very excited and hopeful. And they're confused because like, why? Like it's, it's such a heavy, often negative kind of connotated topic. And the reason why I'm so excited and hopeful is I have the privilege of sitting at the intersection of almost every single industry all over the world. And it is incredible just within the last few years, the last year to see so many people finally feel like recognizing and awakening to what trauma-informed care is and being willing to adopt this lens and, and really integrate it and apply it. And that gives me so much hope because I know the more people we have, this groundswell of people we have adopting trauma-informed care, the more we can push systems to adopt trauma-informed care, which should be the standard, which should be non-negotiable, especially in health and human services. So I'm really excited. I'm really hopeful. I'm so honored to work with um, so many different professionals, like I said, internationally across the U.S., everywhere um, from five continents I serve. So it's so amazing too to see folks adopt this into their language, into their culture, into their spaces so that we can kind of expand the understanding of what trauma-informed care is and, and really also just realize it's we're deserving, we're all deserving of this kind of care. It should just be the standard of care. Should be everywhere, yes. And I just wanna underscore something you just said, which is it's at the intersection of every industry. Everywhere we are, it's ubiquitous. Trauma is everywhere and we're either acknowledging it or we're not. Um, Absolutely. So one thing I love that you talk about is, you know, for those folks who may be newer to trauma-informed care or what that means, you know, we look at lots of different models that are out there as trauma-informed experts or experts in this field. Um, I love how you talk about this continuum of support, Katie. Will you just give us the Katie Kurtz crash course in what it means to go from, you know, along this continuum of what we call trauma-informed work? Yes. So <laughs> for anyone listening who is like sort of familiar with trauma-informed care is, but isn't, and maybe a little maybe a little confused. It's not you, it's us. It's because we don't have universal shared language or understanding around trauma, let alone trauma-informed care. There's all sorts of different uh, ways to interpret, ways to define, different models, different frameworks, different methodologies. So it's, it's all sort of the same and then all sort of different. How I interpret trauma-informed care is it is a bi-directional approach that really is applied across your your professional and personal lens, your scope of practice, whatever that boundary is, that promotes a culture of trust, personal safety, belonging, and healing in all its forms, that's there to resist and reduce harm and promote that, that felt sense of safety and an ability uh, to be honored in your full humanity, whatever that may be. And so when we think about the spaces, the people where we can show up exactly as we are, those spaces and people where we have full trust, where we have a full bodily sensation of safety, if we bring our presence, our, our awareness to those people or spaces, 
what is possible? What are you able to do? What are you able to say when you are in those, those spaces or with those people? Now, what if you could feel and be that full expression of yourself in the place you work, in the place you receive healthcare, in the place you, you live, pray, learn, play, whatever. When we're able to access that sense of safety and trust in our personal body and being, the possibilities are boundless. And so why should it only be in one certain area, your therapist's office or your, your clinician's office? Why shouldn't that be universal? Because we're social beings. We live in social contexts. Uh, and we look at social influences of health, you know, 80% of our health is influenced in all those other places. So why shouldn't those spaces and those people be equipped with really comprehensive, practical, everyday living kind of skills and tools to offer that kind of empathy forward approach? Mm -hmm. Okay, so I just want to break down a couple of things that you're saying, because I just trained a group of physicians the other day, and we were talking about regulation and felt safety. And I was trying to impress on them, Katie, like there are people who walk around always feeling dysregulated, that there isn't a sense of felt safety. Why is that important in, in healthcare, especially? So one of the biggest myths that I am constantly busting in a very gentle and an invitational way, of course, is that we cannot assume safety. Just because I have a lot of letters after my name and the student loans to prove it and all the education and all the training does not mean someone should trust me. If there is no relationship, trust should not be assumed. It should be built over time. Nor should I assume somebody should feel safe in my presence. It is my job to ensure someone can access safety in my presence because what feels safe for me may not feel safe for you. So it's quite presumptuous of me to assume oh, well, this person feels safety, especially if somebody holds an intentionally or historically marginalized identity that is quite assumptive and quite could lead to a possible pathway of harm. So when we think about the origins of trauma-informed care, one of the most important and often unnamed or unacknowledged origins are the grassroots efforts of survivors and social justice advocates. And what we know way back you know, 50 plus years ago, is that trauma-informed care is rooted in social justice framework. So when we look at safety, um, I always say we can't create safe spaces. We can aim to create brave, strong, empathetic spaces and regulated spaces so people can access safety, whatever that feels like in our presence. And we have to also accept, especially in spaces that are very vulnerable, like your healthcare provider, uh, a hospital, a clinician, whatever that may be, is that someone may not be able to access safety in your presence. So you have to allow that acceptance and still show up in a way where you are personally attuned, that you are regulated in your nervous system, and you can be that mirror for co-regulation so that if and when that person is able, they can access that. Oh my gosh. I, I just want to like, um, if people could see me right now, it, this makes me so passionate and so excited, right? Because I know that like you, Katie, we train all these people and it's like, what they say to us is I'm safe. I'm a safe person. Why don't they feel safe with me? Why doesn't this person feel? And what I say and what I hear you saying is we earn safety with them by how we behave. And then maybe they'll feel safe in our presence, but we don't get 
we don't just we're not just given safety and and so many professionals well intended well-intended, loving, kind, incredible people who have done wonderful service through, you know, medicine, healthcare, law enforcement, whatever the case may be, come and they say, I'm a safe person. This person should trust me. And what you're saying, which is just music to my ears is no, they don't have to, we can't assume trust. We have to earn that. And so will you say more about this mirrored co-regulation, like things that we can do to create felt safety for people who are in our presence? Yeah, absolutely. So when I first learned about trauma-informed care, it was, you know, right when the SAMHSA model was being published. So that good old tip 57, right? About 15 years ago, this is still pretty new. Mm -hmm. And I was taught as a trauma therapist and clinician that this was a one-dimensional approach, that everything I provide is only for the client in front of me or the family. Mm -hmm. And that I had to shut down and make sure I was providing this care towards others. And it always confused me because I was like, but did we read about that? Like this approach seems so bi-directional and it finally includes us, but you want me to cut myself off to provide this care. And I understand absolutely boundaries, absolutely scope of practice. I think what happens is people think trauma-informed care is a coddling or we're just like over giving, over accommodating to people. And actually trauma-informed care is an incredibly boundary practice. Another tangent for another time. What I've learned over the years and how I teach trauma-informed care is it's a bi-directional approach. If we are cutting off our humanity in that space, then it's not trauma-informed. We have to include ourselves to ensure that we are attuning to how we are showing up in that space to the person or people we're delivering this care to. And that doesn't just include our patients or our clients, but it includes our teams, our our colleagues, our communities. So when I teach trauma-informed care, I am teaching about trauma and giving a really core foundational understanding of trauma, but I'm not going into a PhD level, all the things, right? Because I don't actually think we need all the information about trauma to be trauma-informed. I actually think if we give too much, it becomes overwhelming and flooding and people begin to shut down. So I train and give just enough information to be a solid foundation to that inform those, the whole point of trauma from care is to inform your actions and interactions. And then we go immediately in to nervous system, how do I regulate and become attuned to my nervous system? Because our nervous systems mirror one another. If I walk into a training room and I'm anxious or disheveled, or I drink too much coffee, whether people realize it or not, they might start to pick up on that sort of dysregulation. And then we have a dysregulated room, whether it's my intention or not, right? A lot of great intentions, but those intentions and that impact are not aligned. That's where that potential pathway for harm can occur. So by me pausing, tuning in to how am I feeling right now? What does safety feel like in my body? We cannot expect anyone to feel safe with us if we have no idea what safety feels like in our bodies. Uh This is an embodiment practice. And I know that might seem like a very woo-woo term for people, but embodiment means being aware of your body. That's Mm -hmm. it. That's all that means. So if we can tune into our bodies and notice the sensations, notice the sensory elements that impact our bodies and how we show up, 
which impacts then our external presentation, we're then able to ensure when I show up to a training room that I am, I'm regulated, I'm neutral, right? And then that neutrality offers that mirroring to others, which they can then pick up on. And that's that co-regulation. So it goes beyond, you know, the self-care that you can find at Target. This is nervous system care where we are practicing it as much as we're practicing any other thing we're doing for our well-being. And, and being open to that understanding that what may work for me now may not have worked three months ago because we were ever-evolving people. But those tools, those practices that help regulate our nervous system help us build flexibility and adaptability in our nervous system. And that's what resilience is. Resilience isn't gutting it out or persevering, it's that flexibility. And so the more we can practice, we can build our capacity so that we can then offer and extend that to other people. And if we are at our capacity and we're just having a bad day or month or year, we're more attuned to, I, I don't have it. So then how can I communicate to my colleagues, my people, my patients, and resource myself as needed so I can continue to show up even if my capacity is low. Okay, so I feel like that's like step two. Step one, <laughs> and I want my friends and colleagues listening to this who are healthcare professionals to hear what you just said, which is that embodiment approach simply is paying attention to what's happening in your body, except here's the problem. In healthcare, you're taught to not pay attention to work through lunch, to stand for long hours. In fact, you're championed for doing that. You are told, oh my gosh, you are so incredible. You don't need a bathroom break. You did a six hour surgery. Um, you didn't sleep for 52 hours. That's amazing. And so constantly I'm talking, especially to physicians and nurse practitioners and um, to unlearn those messages and to lean into a space of embodied practice because it truly is the only way they can be in that space for their patients, right? Mm -hmm. So the simple and most powerful tool I teach, and I teach in a very experiential way. So everything you're learning, you're also experiencing because that's how we embody. So is practicing the pause. You can practice the pause in literally any way. I'm sure this is a very familiar practice to you. I encourage people to literally just take a moment, find your breath. If you're not breathing, you're not alive. So we're all breathing. Where's your breath? We don't have to go into some yogic breath work session. It's just literally noticing, is your breath shallow? Is it deep? Is it in your throat, in your chest, your belly? Did you leave it in the other room? Call your breath in. We know that taking a deep breath or any type of breath work, whether it's triangular breathing, box breathing, or just a simple sigh, will activate the beginning of regulation in our nervous system. So taking that breath and just allowing yourself to sigh it out and then checking in. Did I just skip lunch, bathroom, everything? Okay, that's a lot. It's also not a typical thing. You know, we can glorify that all you want, but it's actually quite inhumane. So let's just name it. What's your capacity like right now? Capacity is simply think of a container. Our bodies are containers. We can only hold so much. We're really good at holding a lot, but we can only hold so much. 
And if you're walking into that patient room and you're about to implode because you haven't gone to the bathroom, you haven't had a snack, you're hangry and you're overwhelmed, but you have to get into that patient room. Okay. How are you going to resource yourself now? Because you're going to have to go in there, but you also have to take care of your needs. So if you need your basic needs met, can you run to the restroom really quick and let that patient know, I just need to step in and I'll come back. Simple communication is always going to be our bridge. So much of what trauma-informed care is, is communications. We can take two minutes to meet our own needs so that we have more minutes to show up for that patient. Mm -hmm. The reason why it's so imperative for individuals, especially in healthcare settings, to adopt trauma-informed care is that we need to create a groundswell that will eventually push systems to change the culture of care to include them and their humanity and the humanity of our patients. Yeah, It is not typical, it is not humane to not go without your basic needs of sleep, using the restroom, drinking water or food for hours on end. It's glorified because of our capitalistic systems. Mm -hmm. And so I wish I could sit in the C-suites of these healthcare systems. Uh, and I have sat in those C-suites uh, <laughs> and imploring to care mm -hmm. about the humanity of not only their patients, but their staff and their providers. And unfortunately, it's often a plea because there's not a recognition of the bi-directionality of this approach. Mm -hmm. And it goes to the core of how are we treating each other? And when we're able, what would happen if you were able to have a snack and go to the bathroom and then see your patients? rather than overriding your own needs. Again, the possibilities are boundless and sometimes they're quite simple and should, should happen, but simply pausing and getting used to the pause, we have to remember, I say this all day, I'm about to put it on a flag and wave it from my house. <laughs> Trauma can be seen as too much, too fast, too soon. An overwhelm to our bodily system or the system of our teams or organizations or communities. If we cannot use the same tools that cause trauma to prevent, mitigate, or heal it. So if you're thinking that you're going to go in and use that same energy of too much, too fast, too soon towards yourself or others, you are not preventing healing or mitigating trauma. You're just perpetuating harm. So mm -hmm. simply slowing things down a little bit. I know it's counterintuitive and countercultural in our very unnecessary, urgent society, but if we can take a pause, we can begin to slow things down. Now, I know in healthcare, there are crises and there are things that need our immediate attention. We can still pause during crisis. Uh, as a former crisis worker, actually, it is extraordinarily beneficial to take a, a single second to pause, assess and discern, rather than immediately jump in to a situation. So this is always accessible to us. You just have to choose it. Mm -hmm. and, and I think, Katie, you and I have both been in meetings where the professionals who are there say, we provide incredible trauma-informed care for our patients or our client or whoever it is, but not for ourselves and not for each other. And, and I love incomplete. this is bi-directional, right? This isn't just for the people that you serve, it's for the serving people also. So I want to just capture for people, I was taking good notes as a student while you were talking, right? Breathe. There's a lot of research around breathing. 
I, I tell people all the time, you know, research that came out 90 seconds of breathing reduces cortisol by 30%. And then check in with yourself, look at your capacity, resource yourself, and meet some of your basic needs before you go into a space. I mean, if, if folks listening just took that little checklist from Katie, right? Breathe, check in with yourself, look at your capacity, and then meet some of your needs. Even if you just communicate to a patient or a coworker real quick, hey, I got to just take a quick bathroom break. I'll be right back. Somebody can pop their head in an exam room or whatnot and say, you know, they'll be right with you. Um, that would begin to at least help you show up in a more regulated way. It's one step in that direction. Um, As somebody who has thrived off of the adrenaline of crisis work and busy healthcare systems and that environment and culture and used to glorify my ability to like be, keep up that pace, I used to just be like, all right, yeah, breathe. Okay. Drink water. You know, those really basic things and just, I like heavy eye roll and skip it. Mm -hmm. And what I have learned is by skipping all those very basic, but necessary needs, the stress accumulated to the point of, of burnout and harm towards myself of, of, you know, really debilitating my capacity to show up and continue this, to sustain this work. And as somebody who has worked within healthcare who and who is an advocate to multiple healthcare appointments for two older adults in various systems, I know that I would rather my physician or surgeon or whomever come in and say, hey, I'm really sorry, just have to run to the restroom really quick, by all means. Like, yes, please do that. I'd rather you do that or grab a glass of water or drink a glass of water in my presence than, than not. Because what kind of message then are you sending to, to your patient, right? And it's hard and it takes practice. That's why, this is why it's a practice. Like any anything, it takes time. And I know in our culture, we don't like things. We want the shortcuts. We want the quick fixes. However, there is no arrival with trauma-informed care. It's an evolution. It evolves as we evolve, as long as we practice it. We wouldn't expect anyone to go into an hour, you know, psych 101 class and then leave a, a psychologist. Like that's not how life works. So like any skill, it takes practice, but it starts by you, the individual choosing to show up and practice it and then continuing, continuing that to show up. I, I love this idea of, you know, just leaning into your humanity a little bit and, you know, your preference of I'd rather my provider, like take the bathroom break, even drink water in my presence, than skip it. And it reminds me, Katie, of this mentor I had in graduate school. And she was, you know, in her fifties. So she was experienced and veteran in this work and just kind of new implicit practices. And, um, she would have a snack sometimes during the middle of a therapy session with a client. And I would be watching this thinking like no person in my graduate program said it was okay for me to eat in front of my clients. Like that's weird. Right. Like I labeled it as weird at the time. And she always had a snack basket out in her room for other people. And she would have tea and make tea with them and have a snack and encourage them to eat. And I think 
at first it was kind of foreign to me because it wasn't how I was being trained at the same time. Then I saw her modeling this like, oh, we're actually in community together now. And it made her feel more accessible to people. Um, do you find that that's true that when we just lean into that a little bit? I have two things to say about that. Well, three, first of all, I love that. Uh, second, what a beautiful example of co-regulation. You know, we always think, I think we immediately jump to, okay, we need to practice meditation and everything has to be calm and Zen. And that's how we get to nervous system regulation. And sometimes it is, but regulation in our nervous systems do not, does not equals calm. It equals neutral. So how do we get to neutrality? Sometimes we need to ground and sometimes we need to release. And sometimes we just need to meet our basic needs. So by that beautiful example is I'm gonna eat this food so that I can ensure my blood sugar and my cortisol, like I have a stack to nourish myself so I can sustain the next six sessions. I encourage you, have you had a snack today? Would you like that? Mm -hmm. Tea, a hot warm of something mug, a mug of something warm is a beautiful thing to help access presence. Tea is actually in many cultures, tea ceremonies are utilized to help activate presence, activate mindfulness and practice regulation. What a beautiful way to extend and teach out loud what co-regulation is in a therapy session. I love that. We should have more of that. Mm -hmm. The third thing I'll say is we cannot, and this is for all the system leaders out there, cannot expect to have sustainability within our systems, healthcare systems, et cetera, if we are not actively applying these approaches into our workforce and not the pizza parties and the self-care days and the lunch and learns. This is cultural adaptation to the ethos of how you deliver care. How you deliver care will be greatly impacted if you have burned out providers who have compassion fatigue and moral injury from continuously overriding their humanity. We're not gonna be able to deliver the care or meet the bottom lines because we are going to have we're not gonna have a workforce. And that's not just in healthcare, that's in mental health care, all the healthcare, all of these human facing providers, we need to be adopting this. And it's, it's non-negotiable at, at this point. And I'm hot take or not, we are human first helper second. And if we do not honor the humanity within our workforces, then we are doing a great disservice to the people we're providing the care for and also the longevity of these services because who's going to provide it if we've burned everyone out. Mm -hmm. So I, I think by taking small examples like that, that counter the culture of professionalism, quote unquote, or the way things have always been done or glorifying the hustle and the productivity and making, honoring the and both of we can still provide good care and have productive days and be efficient and also not create inhumane, you know, environments in which we are, you know, putting the humanity at the bottom of the list for the people delivering this care. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think about things that leaders could take and do right away from the information you're giving them. Right. And one of the first things is just have a discussion with the people who whom you lead and say, in what ways are, are we servicing your full selves, your whole selves, and, and are, what ways are we not? 
Um, and there's a lot of models Absolutely. that we can look to for that. Absolutely. One of my most favorite things I say, as somebody who's a recovering perfectionist, always overthinking, like wanting to be that professional in a very hyper-professional, you know, high-level systems that I've worked in for the last 15 years is that if I make a mistake or if I need to meet my needs, I'll say, oh, how human of me, oh, how human of me that I need lunch or a bathroom break or a minute to scream in the bathroom. Like we, again, that's why I say it so often is we are human first. We can't be anything else other than human first. So it's, it all starts with conversations. If we can remove the assumptions and the projections and just have a conversation, yeah, there's tons of models and methods, but simply just having a, a, a simple conversation to start with is the pathway forward and expanding our empathy to include ourselves. Um, and again, not seeing this as some like over cuddling, you know, kumbaya moment, but actually a, a very boundary practice that is here to not just sustain how we show up to deliver services, but increase our ability to do that. What if providers, I always love to play this game, like what would it, what would it be like if providers had a little more capacity in their day and in their weeks and their months? What would, what would be possible? You know, what would be possible if we had more access to the, the care we need and the people delivering that care had the ability to provide it? Mm -hmm. oh like, my gosh. I mean, it's, well, it's not some Pollyanna yeah. daydream. It's totally within our reach. It's just, we're going to unfortunately have to create a groundswell to make that a reality. Yes, I totally agree. And I love this, this language you, you use so much. I want to reiterate when, you know, people are just having a, a normal moment throughout their day to say, you know, of course, there you are being fully human, right? Um, what I say to people is, um, you know, when they say, I feel really sad about this, or I'm upset, or I'm angry, just to say, of course I am. Of course, that's what it would look like because we have to acknowledge these things that are happening um, around us. So let, let me shift gears just um, because we've been talking about trauma-informed. And I know that sometimes people get really overwhelmed, Katie, at this notion of becoming trauma-informed. And you are really good at dismantling that and saying, we actually don't need every single person to be trauma-informed. What do we need? So. We need at least everyone to be trauma aware. So I teach something called the trauma competency framework. It's a scaffolded learning approach to help decipher where you land on these different levels. So it starts with trauma aware. I have a basic understanding of trauma. Maybe I got there from Googling. Maybe I read a book. I listened to a podcast. Mm -hmm. However you got there, it means I know what trauma is. I understand its impact, the insidious nature we now know from population studies that virtually every single person, including ourselves, has a lived experience of trauma. It also means you're understanding toxic stress as well, because we know the same imprint of toxic stress has on our bodies like trauma does. But that's it. Literally like anything else we're aware of, you know, I'm, I might be aware of climate change or, you know, 
what's happening in a certain country or mental health, it's mental health awareness month. Like we can be aware of what these things are, but that's sort of where it stops. The next level of competency is trauma mindfulness, meaning I have some knowledge, but now I have some tools to be more mindful in my everyday, to be more sensitive, to more considerate. It may not always be at top of mind, but I'm working to really garner a mindfulness like traditional mindfulness practice. We're not mindful all the time, right? How many times have you driven somewhere and you get to your destination? You're like, how did I even get here? Like I was thinking about 12 other things, right? Our brains are brilliant. And so it takes effort to be mindful of I'm, this is where I'm going. I'm taking a right turn. The same goes for trauma. How can I be mindful that the person in front of me or the people I'm serving likely have a lived experience of trauma. So how can that shift the way I show up? How can I bring that to the forefront? I don't need anything else. I just didn't need to be mindful. The next level is trauma-informed. I have awareness. I have mindfulness. I have those tools. And then I've taken ample time to create a skill set to apply to my scope of practice, that professional boundary. It means I'm actively engaging in ensuring that I am reducing and resisting harm through skill sets that are informed by understanding what trauma is. It's really, I know it can feel daunting because we have, it, it's can, the term and like we have these different things, but it's, if you're in health and human services, it needs to be the standard of care. Like it is, it's non-negotiable at this point. It's so I'm, I'm encourage people. I don't say it as a threat. I, it's an invitation that we, we can get there together. Yeah. The last one is trauma responsive. So this is where I differ than other models like trauma-informed Oregon or the Missouri model. We have to remember that trauma-informed care was developed by, that initial SAMHSA model was developed by and for mental health clinicians. It was never intended to become the standard of care widespread throughout every industry. So when I go into industries that are non-clinical and I say trauma responsive, they're going to think, oh, well, I can respond to trauma. And we do, not, we do not need health coaches. We do not need certain people responding to trauma. We need them to be aware, mindful, or informed. So in the trauma competency framework, responsiveness are those people with extensive histories, the, the credentials, the scope of practice, people like yourself who have the ability to address trauma and help someone to and through it. That's our only level of competency. So, so often when I've trained healthcare providers, they're like, well, we have social workers. We don't need trauma-informed care. That's for, that's for the therapists and social workers. And this is where we need to usher in a new future of trauma-informed care to understand that trauma-informed care is not a clinical approach. It's not reserved for social workers and therapists. It's available to all of us. Therefore, we all have the ability to get to that competency. But if we can't get there yet, at least get to mindfulness. Trauma, trauma mindfulness within the medical healthcare world is essential to go into having some tools in your toolbox to ensure you are reducing and resisting harm as much as possible in your spaces. Wonderful. Okay. So just to be clear, I misspoke a little bit earlier when I said, you know, people don't have need to be trauma informed. Really what I meant to say using your models, they don't, not everybody has to be trauma responsive, like that clinician who's delivering service, but we should all aspire to be trauma informed and at minimum mindful. Absolutely. I, when I train people, I don't want anyone to become a social worker or a therapist. I mean, if that's what you are, great. We also have to remember that most social workers and therapists and psychologists and psychiatrists are not trauma-informed. 
we need to stop assuming that people within the mental health profession are trauma-informed or even trauma-trained. It's very limited in graduate education to even have access to trauma education, and most professionals aren't trauma-informed. So let's make sure we're, again, gently busting that myth as well. Maybe so I like <laughs> have to repeat this for people, right? Don't assume that the therapist you reach out to, the psychiatrist you reach out to, the medical system that you reach out to is a trauma-informed, trauma-trained person, right? Just because they deal with mental health doesn't mean they understand complex trauma, complex stress in all of its forms and intersections. Really ask questions about that. Yes. And we have to remember that trauma is not mental health. Trauma may manifest into mental health symptoms. Our nervous system responses when we have trauma responses may look like anxiety, depression, or other mental health symptoms, or they may develop into mental illness, especially PTSD or complex PTSD. But trauma is not mental health. So we need to stop with this pigeonholing of trauma only living in the mental health profession. It does not exist there. It exists everywhere else. So we have to create inclusive and adaptable ways to make it applicable in every setting because trauma is everywhere. It's a part of our humanity. And we don't just exist in our psychiatrist or therapist office. We exist in all these other places. So that was the whole intention of the origin of trauma-informed care is to ensure people were equipped to understand the realities of trauma. So we need to, we need to broaden it and not assume that it's just for clinicians. Oh my gosh. Amen. 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 Okay. So if people want to learn more about the trauma competencies framework, how do they find you? How do they reach out to you? Yeah. So I have a free guide. It's called the aware guide. It, uh, it breaks down each of these competencies. And again, it's just showing you kind of the scaffold and learning. It doesn't tell you how to get there but rather how to find the best level for you with some included resources. So you can download that free guide if you go to um, katie-kurtz.com and that's available to read um, and, and you know download for free. It's a digital kind of ebook. Uh, mm-hmm. And then I also do lots of different um, professional trainings, um, professional development trainings, consultation, workshops, et cetera, um, on this topic and, and really helping create uh, a future of trauma-informed care that is inclusive and adaptable for all people and spaces. Awesome. So we will link up to Katie's website in the show notes. She also um, runs trainings around a program called Cultivate, which I have heard testimonials of from even friends of mine who love being in that space with you. Would you just briefly describe Cultivate in case people are interested in being part of that movement because you're doing incredible things there? Yeah, thank you. So Cultivate is a comprehensive evidence-informed, trauma-informed space-holding training. Space-holding is a term that's maybe new or different. To hold space means to be with. So if we think of being with people in no matter what state they're at, it includes many of us in the healthcare mental health field because we're professional space holders. We're being with people in their process, whether it's delivering care, healing services. So space holding, uh, trauma-informed space holding and how I teach it through Cultivate expands the traditional kind of training of trauma-informed care and goes more in depth to create embodied practices. So this becomes the way in which you lead your life. It expands your lens of empathy, 
it expands and becomes the lens through which you lead both professionally and personally, because we cannot compartmentalize our life, right? We are human first, everything else second. So Cultivate is an experiential training. It's delivered virtually, also in person or live. I work with individuals all over the world. Um, I think we have right now five continents represented. Um, I've been delivering this training for many years now. And it, it draws all sorts of different professionals of all different industries because it's inclusive and adaptable. So the same, you know, doctor that gets the training this is the same as the midwife, as the same as the photographer and the entrepreneur. It's all just how you apply it then to your professional boundary or scope of practice. So you leave feeling confident because you're competent in how to deliver these skills and tools in a trauma-informed way. Um, and so, yeah, I love that training. It's it's a beautiful way to really either for beginners to start to adopt this this lens or for people who are experienced to reignite or reaffirm and strengthen their um, competency. Yeah, I agree. I think just incredible things happening there. Um, I know we're we're bumping up against our time here to wrap up. I just have a couple rapid fire questions for you. Sure. Um, if you could go back to the younger Katie 15 years ago before you endeavored into this work, um, what would you tell her? Cool. So many things. Um, I think the biggest thing I would say is trust yourself and trust the process. And yeah, and you will get student loan forgiveness. So hang in there. <laughs> oh, thank goodness. Um, I think often, especially in healthcare, you know, people get intimidated by professionals and authorities and, you know, people who just know so much. Will you share with our listeners just one thing that makes you perfectly imperfect, just a, a messy human? <laughs> oh, goodness. I mean, everything. I, I am a chronic overthinker. I can overthink myself in the deepest of ways. Uh, often speak before I think and make mistakes. I cause harm. Uh, I am, I am always going to be human. Um, but I think the most important thing I've learned is it's not about if and when, and most importantly, what do you do next? And so, um, learning how to communicate and own my humanity has been uh, as Glennon Doyle says, a brutal process. Uh, it's brutal <laughs> and beautiful at the same time, but it's um, it's it's just who who among us? I mean, I mean, who hasn't? If if anyone's like, I've got this figured out. I mean, they're like, you're in great denial or you're lying. Like I don't know, but we're all we're all just here doing the best we can with what we have. I agree. Um, last question, um, toughest one on the most important medicine. It's eleven o'clock at night and you have a food craving, what do you reach for? Huh? Well, ice cream always. Uh, my childhood dream was to be an ice cream scooper. The dream is still alive. And yeah, I love ice cream. My family, ice cream is big in our family. I think it's, it's a great comfort and joy. Any, any in particular favorite? Well, we have a really special place in Cleveland that uh, I love called Mitchell's ice cream, but I'm, I just love 
full dairy, nothing fancy, you know, a good mint chocolate chip is, is perfect. All the things. Okay. Yeah. Um, all right. So friends, I'm going to link up to Katie's website in the show notes. Um, you can find her on all the socials. You should definitely part, be part of what she's doing in these spaces. Um, and I just want to just pause and say, I'm so glad you entered my world. I just feel like you're changing spaces in the most beautiful way and with the most thoughtful, intentional, compassionate curriculums. So thank you for being in this space. Thanks, Amy. I feel the same way. I'm thrilled you you exist in this world and that you're in healthcare and you know, we need you, we need everything you've done. Uh, and I just hope that I'm hopeful that it just keeps expanding and it infiltrates our healthcare systems. Uh, we need, we need it and you're a gem. So thank you so much. Thank you. Well, that's it friends. If you like what you're hearing in this space, I invite you to join us in the Provider Lounge, a learning collaborative to build resilience. It's an incredible group of physicians who meet monthly, get CME and lean into conversations about trauma, resilience and other tough topics. This is the most important medicine. Keep listening to other people's stories and let them transform you and keep sharing your own because your humanity will heal others. We'll talk soon.